Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Zechariah 4, beginning in the 6th verse, we'll use the 10th verse as our text. Then he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord, which run to and fro through the whole earth. The year is approximately 520 B.C., and it's the period of the Restoration after the Babylonian captivity. The prophet Zechariah is among those that have returned for the purpose of rebuilding Jerusalem, a city that had been sacked by Nebuchadnezzar about 50 years earlier. A man named Zerubbabel, whose name means out of Babylon, has been superintending this reconstruction project. And the first order of business, of course, was the rebuilding of the temple, the house of worship. Even before they built their own houses, they focused on the rebuilding of the temple. Now, you may remember Solomon's temple was the center of Jewish life and worship. It was a magnificent structure. Solomon's temple was ornate. It was gigantic. It was the wonder of that world. But Nebuchadnezzar had leveled it so that not one stone was left on top of the other. And now, under Zerubbabel's leadership, they begin the reconstruction project to rebuild the temple, the place of Jewish worship. Ezra chapter 3 Verse 10 describes step one in this project of reconstruction, which was, of course, to lay the foundation. Would you listen to this reading? Ezra chapter 3 and the 10th verse. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men and had seen the first house When the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. And many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. 
So you have this mixed response. Some were happy and others said it's not what it once was. Then after the foundation was laid, just as the project was begun, it was brought to a screeching halt due to political interference by the Samaritans. That's the theme of the next chapter in Ezra, Ezra chapter 4. Verse 11 says that the Samaritans sent a letter to King Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is a title for the kings of Persia. They sent a letter to him, and in the letter, the Samaritans complained about the Jews' reconstruction project. All it takes for a work to be halted is somebody to file a lien against it and to complain. And on this occasion, they appeal to the king of Persia, and they say to him, I want the king to know, verse 12, that the Jews which came up from thee have come to Jerusalem, and they are building the rebellious and the bad city. And they've set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. Be it known unto the king that if this city be built and the walls set up again, then they will not pay toll, tribute, and custom, so that thou shalt endamage the revenue of the kings. In other words, you don't want this project to continue, king. We're telling you as people in the know that this needs to be halted. Now, because we have maintenance from the king's palace, and it was not meet or fit for us to see the king dishonored, therefore we have sent and certified the king that search may be made in the books of the records of thy fathers, that you will know that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful unto kings and provinces, and that they have moved sedition within the same of old time. So basically they're tattling. The Samaritans are tattling on the Jews. And they're saying, King, you don't want this project to continue. We certify the king that if this city be builded again and the walls are set up, by this means thou shalt have no portion on this side of the river. You're going to lose some of your tax revenue. You're going to lose control of these people. Once they get a taste of independence, then you won't be able to collect any more tribute from them. The king then sent answer back in verse 17, and here's what he said. Give you now commandment, verse 21, to cause these men to cease, and that this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. For why should damage grow to the herd of the kings? And when the copy of this letter from Artaxerxes was read to the Jews, it says they made them to cease by force and power. Notice verse 24, then ceased the work of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, so it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. For 16 years, the work is at a stalemate. It's brought to a standstill. But now, as the next chapter, chapter 5 of Ezra, tells us, verse 1, God raised up a couple of prophets named Haggai and Zechariah. And notice we took our text from the prophecy of Zechariah this morning. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem, I'm in Ezra 5 verse 1, in the name of the God of Israel, then rose up Zerubbabel. Who's Zerubbabel? He's the superintendent. He's the contractor. He's the person in charge of this building project. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, and began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. So what you have in our text is 
encouragement now after 16 years when the work is at a stalemate. 16 years have passed, they just have the foundation laid, but nothing else has transpired because of this political interference. Now, Zechariah and Haggai are sent by God to encourage the people to resume the project. They played a very important role encouraging them to complete the work begun some years earlier. And by the way, just for one other reference, if you look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 2 says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest, and the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How many of you ancient people remember Solomon's temple? Now, many years have passed, but there were some still living who'd seen Solomon's temple. And he said, How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. God says it's time to resume the project. And interestingly, Haggai is a pretty hard-hitting prophecy. Haggai is not quite as smooth as Zechariah is, he actually asked them some pretty challenging questions in his prophecy, such as, is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses and the house of the Lord lay waste? He said, you've put effort into your own lives, but you neglected the house of God. And the people responded, said, it's not time yet to build the house of God. And he said, well, when will be a good time, you know? I mean, God said it's time to resume. Let's get started. The people need a little encouragement, and of course, Zechariah and Haggai are there to encourage them with the message, don't despise the day of small things, for God is at work to bless you. That's the message. Notice our text now, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, who hath despised the day of small things? And of course, this question you probably have gathered already is designed to challenge those who saw the original temple, Solomon's temple, and now they are weeping. They are saying, this is in our eyes as nothing. This foundation, you can tell this is not going to be nearly as big, not going to be nearly as grand and impressive. And they said, it's just not that important. The message is don't despise small things. For what begins very small, God is able to bless it, and cause it to grow and flourish. And I want you to notice this word despise. It speaks of an attitude. Now we know that the world despises the church. Of course there was a time when they just uh, were indifferent to the church. But I think we see increasing hostility from this unbelieving world today against the cause of Christ. This world despises the people of God. Later, about a hundred years later after our text, Nehemiah is going to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Remember, he's a cupbearer to the king of Persia, to King Ahasuerus, and he takes a leave of absence, comes back and rebuilds the walls for the protection of the city. But again, they meet with opposition in that project. While they're rebuilding the walls, Sanballat and Tobiah, Nehemiah chapter 4, start mocking what they're doing, they said, these walls are so weak and fragile that if a fox were to brush against it, 
If a little coyote or jackal were to get up on top and walk, it would crumble down. They were mocking and ridiculing, and finally, Sanballat and Tobiah said to Nehemiah, we're going to come and attack you while you're working. So you remember what he did? He set the people with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Keep working, but be ready to defend yourself. You've heard the old saying, trust in God and keep your powder dry. Well, they're working, but they're also ready to do battle. They have a sword and a trowel. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 4, Nehemiah says, Lord, they have despised the work that we're doing here. We know the world is going to despise the church. And that shouldn't come as any surprise to us, for it despised our Savior. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's a matter of fact, the world will despise God's people. But our text this morning is directed not to the world, but to the people of God themselves, who has despised the day of small things. He's saying to God's people, don't have an attitude of contempt for the small beginnings in this reconstruction project. The word despise means to have an attitude of contempt, to snub, to dismiss as irrelevant, to undervalue something, to consider it insignificant. The principle that is taught in our text this morning is don't dismiss the size of a project or the size of a human being or the size of someone's efforts in serving the Lord as unimportant and irrelevant. For little is much if God is in it. You ever heard that saying? Little is much if God is in it. Don't despise the day of small things because God can take what appears to be something very little and small and he can multiply it. And this principle is a very important principle for us this morning. Let me illustrate it like this. You could buy a basketball for about $20, probably at Walmart, $19.99, I think I saw Spalding advertised for. It's not all that expensive. But you know, in the hands of Stephen Curry, that basketball could be worth millions. You could buy a violin for about $50, but I read recently that a violin that was made in the year 1719 by Antonio Stradivari sold for $45 million. You can buy one for about $50, but this one sold for $45 million. A work of art by a local artist might bring several hundred dollars at an art show, but you know it's customary for a work by one of the masters like Pablo Picasso, to fetch as much as $100 million at auction. You ask, what makes the difference between the $20 basketball and the million-dollar basketball? What makes the difference between the $50 violin and the $45 million violin? The expert's touch dramatically increases the value of the item. Let me read you something that I've run across several times over the years. You may have heard it called the touch of the master's hand. Would you listen to this? "'Twas battered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it scarcely worth his while to waste much time on the old violin. But he held it up with a smile. "'What am I bidding, good folks?' he cried. "'Who'll start the bidding for me? A dollar, a dollar, then two. 
Only two, two dollars, and who'll make it three? Three dollars once, three dollars twice, going for three. But no, from the room far back, a gray-haired man came forward and picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening the loose strings, he played a melody pure and sweet as caroling angel sings. The music ceased and the auctioneer with a voice that was quiet and low said, what am I bid for the old violin? And he held it up with the bow, a thousand dollars and who'll make it two? Two thousand and who'll make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice and going and gone, said he. The people cheered, but some of them cried, we do not quite understand what changed its worth. Swift came the reply, the touch of the master's hand. And so many a man with life out of tune and battered and scarred with sin is auctioned cheap to the thoughtless crowd, much like the old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He is going once and going twice. He is going and almost gone. But the master comes, and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that's wrought by the touch of the master's hand. You see, my friends, that's what makes the difference between something that is considered to be ordinary and commonplace and that which is extraordinary. The touch of the master's hand can take a small thing and make it valuable and useful and important. Let's look at a few examples in the scriptures of what God can do with that which appears to be ordinary and insignificant. Most of you are familiar with the story of Moses' rod in Exodus chapter 4. When God called Moses, Moses said, Lord, I'm not capable of leading the people. I'm not equipped. I don't feel that I am adequate for the task. But God said, what is that in thine hand? And Moses looks and he says, well, I've got a shepherd's staff. He says, a rod. God said, cast it on the ground. Now, that rod was not magic. It was just a stick. It was a stick that had been carved and shaped for his shepherding task when he was in the backside of the desert. He carried it with him like a walking stick. But God said, cast it on the ground. And when he cast that rod, that common, ordinary stick on the ground, it became a serpent. And then he said, take it by the tail. And when he reached down and took it by the tail, it became a rod, an inanimate stick, again in his hand. What made the difference between that common, ordinary stick and something now that was able to do the unthinkable. By the way, that rod was cast down in the presence of Pharaoh, you may remember, and it became a serpent. The magicians of Pharaoh essayed to do the same. They cast their rods down, and they had dark magic. Their rods became serpents, but Moses' serpent swallowed their serpents. And then when he picked it up again, it was just a common stick. By that rod, Moses stretched it out over the Red Sea and the waters parted. Again, there's nothing magic. There's nothing particularly mystical about that stick, but it's the touch of the master's hand. It's that God can take something that looks to be insignificant and unimportant and can use it in dramatic ways. You move forward to 1 Samuel chapter 17 in the familiar story of David and Goliath. Of course, David is just a young boy probably a teenager, he may be 16, 17. 
He's not very experienced. But David has been in the wilderness of Judea for a period of time, keeping watch over his father's sheep. And while he was there, he's had several experiences. He's had to defend the sheep against predators, against a lion on one occasion that came to take one of the lambs from the flock and David took the lion by the beard and he slew the lion with his bare hands. And then later a bear comes to do the same thing and David slays the bear. And on this occasion, when Jesse sends him to check on his brothers, David's brothers who were at the battlefront, David goes and as soon as he walks up on the scene, this tremendous monstrosity of a man named Goliath comes out of his tent and shakes himself and renews his challenge to the Israelite army, send me a man that he may fight with me and whoever wins the battle, this duel between he and I, the whole army will prevail over the other. And the Israelites, of course, shrunk in fear. They were terrified by this intimidating figure. When David walks up on the scene, this little shepherd boy, who is very common, ordinary, apparently insignificant, David is aghast. He's incensed that this giant would have such audacity. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he would defy the armies of the living God. And by the way, that's the first time the word God is mentioned in that entire narrative. They had not even considered God. The other soldiers, Saul, the king, had not even thought about what was happening in terms of God and his glory. And by the way, that's an important secret for you and me, my beloved, is to learn to look at life in terms of the glory of God. Not just in terms of our own comfort and our own agenda, but in terms of what it means for the integrity of God's name. God is not pleased. He's dishonored. You see, the ultimate goal in life is not our comfort and our satisfaction and our ease, but the ultimate goal in life, my friends, is the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's why the whole universe was created. God made it all for his glory, for his pleasure. Revelation 4.11 says they are and were created. And David, therefore, interprets the scene in spiritual, not just merely secular terms. He says, this uncircumcised Philistine is defying God's army. And David said, let me add him. I'll tear him limb from limb. And of course, he's despised. His talk is considered to be exaggerated. In fact, his oldest brother, Eliab, said, be quiet, David. Who sent you here anyway? Go back to your sheep. This is man's work here. By the way, how were the men doing? Not very well, were they? But Eliab said, David, you're just a lad. You're just insolent. You're proud. Leave us alone. We've got this under control. His brother despised him because of his youth. But then as the news gets around that David is talking big, Saul calls him in for a consult. And when David comes into the presence of Saul, David says, I will go fight the giant. Now Saul, in any other situation, would have been thrilled because he'd been looking for somebody to volunteer to take on the giant. But this particular volunteer does not appear to be equipped. And Saul tells him, you're not able. Saul despises David. He looks down upon him with contempt. He dismisses him as irrelevant because of his size and because of his inexperience. 
He says, you're not able. You're just a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. And David said, well, I want to tell you, I've had an experience. God delivered into my hands a lion that came to take a lamb out of the fold. He delivered into my hands the bear. And David says, the God who delivered into my hands the lion and the bear will deliver into my hands this uncircumcised Philistine. You see, my friends, David's faith in God is strong. And Saul says, well, okay then, but here's some armor I want you to put on because you can't go with just a slingshot and five smooth stones. You need something more than that. You need a spear. You need armor. But David tried it on, and it was like a size of 46 long on a 32 regular, you know. It just dwarfed him. And David said, I can't go with this. I've not proved it. I'm not used to it. I need to go with something I'm used to. So David went to Goliath with his slingshot, you remember? And he found five smooth stones by the side of the brook. And he put the stones in his shepherd's bag. And when he came up on Goliath, here's this young shepherd lad against a military hero. And Goliath despises him now. He looks down upon him with content. He dismisses him as irrelevant. In fact, he says, am I a dog that you come at me with a child? driving away dogs with sticks. You know, it would be common for a dad to say to his son, son, take those sticks and go get those dogs away from the house. And the son would go out and hit the sticks together and say, shoo, shoo. Goliath says, you've sent a little child out here after me. And Goliath was livid. And he says, come here, boy, and I'll give your flesh to the fowls of the earth. And David says to him, in the name of the God of Israel, whom thou hast defied, I will do the same to you. And David took a stone from his shepherd's bag, a little insignificant rock. It wasn't a big mighty spear. It wasn't a big shield. It wasn't a great weapon of war, but it's a little rock. And David, with the skill of a shepherd, put that stone in his sling and he let it go. And the stone sunk into the forehead of Goliath and the mighty giant of Gath came tumbling down. And somebody says that stone must have had some power to it. I'll tell you, the power it had in it was not in David's arm. It was in the strength of God. God took something small, the touch of the master's hand, transformed that which appeared to be unimportant and insignificant into something very effective. And then you come forward in the Old Testament to the sixth chapter of Judges. And some of you may remember the story of Gideon who was raised up by God to be a judge over Israel. And the period of the judges was a time when they were oppressed from time to time by the enemy. And on this occasion, the Midianites were oppressing the children of Israel. But God has raised up Gideon to deliver them, and he has 32,000 soldiers in his army. Now, the Midianite army was probably 200,000 strong. We know that at the end of this story, 185,000 of them were slain in one night. So let's say that 15,000 were left, at least 200,000 strong. And by the way, if you have an army of 32,000 and the enemy has an army of 200,000, that's a six to one ratio. But Gideon is going to go to battle with 32,000 against 200,000. But God says to him, the people that are with thee are too many. And he begins to test them. First he says, let tell everyone that is afraid he can go home. And 22,000 soldiers go home to mama. 
Now he's left with 10,000. If he thought that the odds were bad stacked against him before this time, then sure enough, they're bad now. By the way, God says the people are still too many. And he gave them another test, and they're whittled down from 10,000 to 300. Now, by the way, 300 soldiers on Gideon's team against 200,000 Midianites, they're not going to be able to get the job done. They're outnumbered 650 to 1. But God says, by the 300 will I save you. And sure enough, we know the story. That is, Gideon and his army surrounded the bivouacked army of the Midianites during the night. At a certain point, they shouted with a great shout. They broke the pitchers that were covering their lanterns. And when the Midianites awoke, they saw that they were surrounded by all of this light and all of this noise. And they began to sling their swords haphazardly and they slew each other. In fact, the Bible tells us that the angels slew 185,000 Midianite soldiers in one night. It was God that discomfited them, that confused them, that destroyed them. And by the 300 soldiers, God destroyed the entire Midianite army. Yes, my friends, God is able to take a few and to do great things with it. Little is much if God is in it. And then we come to the New Testament, and in the 14th chapter of Matthew, we read this story in the 17th verse. When the multitude was with Jesus and the disciples in this desert place, the disciples said, we need to send them away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals, vittles. It's time to eat. They're hungry. They don't have anything to eat. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart. Give ye them to eat. He tells his disciples, let's just feed them have dinner on the grounds. But the disciples said to him, we have here but five loaves and two fish. Jesus said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and break and he gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples gave it to the multitude and they did all eat and were filled and they took up of the fragments that remained 12 baskets full and they that had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Now here is one of the great miracles that our Lord Jesus Christ performed during his public ministry, in which he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And he multiplied it so that 5,000 men, besides women and children, let's say every second man was married, and then every other couple had at least one child, I think it's easy to say there were probably eight to 10,000 people here on this occasion. And Jesus fed the whole multitude with a few loaves and fishes so that they not only were all filled, but they had 12 baskets of fragments left over, little as much if God is in it. Who hath despised the day of small things, the touch of the master's hand can take that which is insignificant and considered to be nothing considered to be completely useless, he can take it and can do great things with it. We've seen it with Moses' rod. We've seen it with David's sling and stones. We've seen it with Gideon's 300. We've seen it with the lad's few loaves and fishes. And then you turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 42, and we read a story about a widow who had only two mites. Mark 12, 42 says this, Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast in much. 
They made a great show of it. They put in great contributions. But there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and Jesus taught them this lesson. Verily I say unto you, this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For they cast in of their abundance. They had plenty and they took a portion, but she of her want hath cast in all that she had, even all her living. I want to tell you, my friends, that God is able to multiply that which appears to be small and insignificant. In fact, though some might have looked upon her with scorn, some might have derided her sacrifice and said it's nothing compared to what some of these others have given, I'm telling you, God knows and little is much when God is in it. Then you think about the beginnings of the New Testament church. You know, Jesus didn't start the church with a stadium full of people. He didn't start the church with the best and the brightest, a great graduating class from one of the Ivy League schools. He started the church with 12 tax collectors and fishermen and political activists. These were people that we would call blue-collar workers, they were not in the intelligentsia. They were not in the elite crowd of the day. Jesus chose 12 apostles. In fact, according to the world's standards, as Acts 4.13 indicates, they were ignorant and unlearned men. They had not been schooled in the rabbinical schools of the day. They were not reputable and decorated and credentialed fishermen, tax collectors, and political activists. But Jesus said to them in Luke 12.32, Fear not little flock. Notice the tender way he refers to his disciples. He calls them his flock, but he says they're a little flock. Fear not, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Somebody might say, Brother Mike, that doesn't seem natural to me. You would think that it would be the people that deserved it the most. The religious crowd, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the doctors and lawyers, but Jesus gave it to this group of 12 fishermen and tax collectors, he said, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And by the way, do you know what he did with that little flock? He took that small nucleus of original disciples and he multiplied it. On Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church. The house of Cornelius, 5,000 were added. And by the time you reach about midway through the Acts of the Apostles, the report is these that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. Indeed, my friends, the church grew from its very small beginnings. I love the language in Mark chapter 4, verse 30, which teaches us about the beginnings of the New Testament church. He says, Whereunto shall ye liken the kingdom of God, or with what comparison shall we compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and becometh greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. You know that little mustard seed is so small, sometimes it takes a magnifying glass to be able to see it. But the Lord is able to take something that appears to be nothing, insignificant, and he's able to multiply it. And cause it to grow so that it's a great tree. And the fowls of the air come and lodge in its branches. Matthew chapter 13 verse 33 uses another illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, a little bit of yeast. That a woman took and hid in three measures of meal. But that leaven did not stop until the whole was leavened. 
Now, you know, I've been guilty of despising the smallness of the church of Jesus Christ. There have been times I've been embarrassed about times I've thought that there's not much we can do. We're just a few people. We're old. We're poor. We're, in many respects, unimpressive to the world. They won't listen to us. We're not schooled in their schools. We're not credentialed by their institutions. We really have no platform, and I've thought, what good is it? What we're doing here, you say, this is just a little church. It's not like one of the big churches. My friends, may we never be guilty of despising, of dismissing as irrelevant and unimportant, of considering that only the biggest and the best and the brightest is where God's at. The fact is, the Lord often works among the small groups. He works among those whose hearts are perfect toward Him, those who are sincere, In fact, listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 says about the early church. You see your calling, brethren, that not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the mighty, and base things and things that are despised hath God chosen, and things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence." I dare say the Lord arranges things in a way that when it's all said and done, no man can take any credit for the success of the venture. And my friends, God can use common, ordinary people. You don't have to be one of the rich and the famous and the celebrities to be used by God. In fact, the touch of the master's hand on a life of a common, ordinary man or woman or child is all that it takes to transform that which is ordinary and commonplace into that which is eminently useful and impressive in the service of God. I wonder, as I preach this today, if the Master has touched your heart, if there's anybody under the sound of my voice whose life has been invaded by the King of glory. He has come in and taken up residence in your heart He has picked up the old battered and scarred broken violin of your life and he's adjusted the strings and he's tuned it and he's played a beautiful melody upon it. I'm telling you, dear friends, that makes all the difference in the world in a life that is considered to be a throwaway life and one now that will fetch quite a sum at auction because the Lord has put his signature upon us. The principle that we've stressed this morning is that little is much if God is in it. And this is illustrated in the Bible over and again. Isaiah 41, 14 is a classic example where he says, Fear not, thou worm, Jacob. I will make you a sharp threshing instrument, having teeth. What he's saying is little strength is no obstacle when it comes to God. He can take a worm that somebody says, that's such a weak creature, it can't do anything. God says, I'll take a worm and make it into a sharp threshing instrument to tear down the forests of opposition. Second Kings chapter 5, verse 2 tells the story of Naaman's little maid, who was a Jewish girl that had been kidnapped and taken as a slave, and now she's serving Naaman the Syrian. And Naaman has leprosy. And one day the little maid hears Naaman's wife talking about how she's worried about her husband. And she says, you know, this little maid, this insignificant little maid who comes from Israel now in this foreign country says to her matron, she says, oh, that my Lord were able to consult the prophet that is in Judea. And through the influence of that little maid, Naaman's wife tells him what she said. He 
begins to investigate. He gets an appointment with Elisha the prophet, and Naaman eventually, you know, is cured from his leprosy because of that little maid's witness on foreign soil. Now, she might have said, if he dies, that'll be good enough for me. I'm, I don't appreciate being kidnapped. I don't like being away from home. But yet she cares enough to share the truth of what she knows. God can use a little maid who seems to have no influence. Little strength is no obstacle to God. Little influence is no obstacle to God. And finally, Acts chapter 9, verses 36 to 39, we read the story of a seamstress named Tabitha or Dorcas. You may know that when Dorcas dies, all of the sisters and the brethren come together. There's a great crowd of people, and they've all brought their scarves and their coats and the things that Dorcas has made for them, and they're showing them off. They loved her. You might say, now she sews. What does she do? She sews. She has a needle and a thread. And that's really not that important. That's not as important as a big computer, you know, a needle and a thread. But you see, dear friends, she was using her skills to serve the Lord and to help other people. It wasn't something that she advertised on social media and said, look at all that I've done. She wasn't showcasing her talents. This is a woman who sincerely loved her brothers and sisters in Christ and was doing what she could. What is that in your hand this morning, dear friends? What do you have that you can use? You say, well, it's not much, Brother Mike. It's two mites. It's just a few loaves and fishes. I'm telling you, dear friends, little resources are no obstacle to God. Little strength is no obstacle to God. Little influence is no obstacle to God. The touch of the master's hand is that which makes what is otherwise ordinary and commonplace extraordinary and eminently useful. Therefore, don't despise the day of small things. I want to ask you a question as we close this morning. What do you have in your hand? You say, I've just got two talents, Brother Mike. I'm not a ten-talented preacher. I'm just too talented. Then use those two talents to the glory of God, and He will multiply it and use it in ways that you never thought possible. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You say, Brother Mike, I just have two mites. I just have a few loaves and fishes. I just have five smooth stones. I want to tell you today, dear friends, our God specializes in making small things great. As our text says, who hath despised the day of small things? Indeed, God says, Zerubbabel will be blessed to rebuild the temple. The man who started it will finish it. Yes, it's halted for a good while, but God is going to see it to its conclusion. He's going to make it great in his service once again. Yes, my friends, if there's anyone here today whose life has been broken and battered by sin, scarred and bruised, the touch of the master has, though, taken the bruised reed. He's taken the smoking flax. He's taken that which is considered to be useless and to be thrown away on the pile of insignificance in this world. If he's taken your life and he's given you a beautiful melody, may I say you ought to cast in your lot with those of like faith. You ought to unite with the church. You ought to confess him publicly and say, I want to spend my life using whatever is at my disposal, whatever's in my hand. Even though it appears to be small, I want to use my few talents to glorify the one who's done so much for me. No matter how dark the night, or bitter the winds that blow, one touch of the Master's gentle hand, and I am 
Oh, uh-huh.